Right, so uh, looking forward to this study this morning. There's a lot in here. We'll see how far we go. We've come into the kind of second section of the book of Genesis, as you've already seen. And we're looking at this portion now, which really tails off in uh, the end of chapter 36, uh, looking very much at the life of Jacob. So we've gone through the life of Abraham from chapter 12 to 20. Then really Isaac's life given to us from 21 to 27. And now this portion where we're looking at Jacob's life and the, the challenges and the experiences he had, the way that God just drew him closer. You know, last time we ended up seeing Jacob limping after his uh, all-night wrestling contest with God. You know, and, and often and the Lord will put us through trials and situations that we wrestle through and we come out limping, but, you know, we're stronger because of it. You know, there's the various analogies that are used. Um, you know, the, the butterfly um, is, is a good one. And if you want to know more about butterflies, then you can speak to Bob. Uh, he'll give you lots more detail than I can. Um, but butterflies, when they, they go from that chrysalis stage to being a butterfly, they, they're kind of forced out. Um, there's this kind of story of this, this young person is looking at a butterfly, seeing it struggling, and thought it just snipped the edge, make it a little bit easier to get out. And that butterfly never flew, because as it pushes out of the chrysalis, it pushes the, the fluid and everything else into its wings, and it gives it the strength to fly. Unless it went through that challenge, it would never be able to fly. You know, and that's a great analogy of us in our walk with the Lord. Sometimes we go through trials and difficulties that we don't always fully appreciate or understand. But God knows. God is in full control. And as we've said before, you know, if you were able to choose your plan for your life or God's plan for your life, or isn't God's plan the one we'd always go for? Why would we want to go for our plan? We don't know everything. We know in part now. But God knows all things. God, God's ways are above our ways. His thoughts are above our thoughts. And so we just need to, to hang in there and to trust God. And we were looking very much last time about the promises of God. Well, again, we've gone through that wrestling, uh, Jacob being wrestling, uh, reconciled uh, with Esau, his brother. And the, what we're going to go on and look at is uh, this bizarre, sad, quite distressing situation that occurs with Jacob's daughter, Dinah, and then what the brothers do to avenge her. And then in chapter 35, we go on to Jacob returning to Bethel. And it's interesting what he, he renames this place uh, at that point as well. We'll t- talk about that if we get there. Uh, and then the last chapter really dealing with the life of Jacob. Uh, we just get this uh, generations of Esau, which is kind of a tangent, but you'll see how that kind of connects in as well. So we jump straight into chapter 34, verse 1, and we read, And Dinah, the daughter of Leah, which she bare unto Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. This is where this problem begins at that point. Chuck Misler, in his commentary, just made this comment. I thought it was just, just put it perfectly. This action loosened a stone that caused a landslide. It's a great kind of picture of what actually really happens because, you know, it's almost a whole load of rocks and things piled up on a hillside and you just move one small stone and the whole lot comes crashing down. And that's the nature of sin. The nature of sin is to get us to take what we think is just one innocuous step and it can lead to so many problems. Curiosity has killed far more than just the cat. You know, we've got to prepare our children for life in this world. And one of the lessons that we can see from this is that Jacob, however good a, a father he was, clearly hadn't done a good job in preparing his daughter's heart for the things that she was going to face. And we we see that Dinah doesn't just go for a quick wander and come back home. There's some time that's spent in the world. And the problem is, the more time you spend in the world, the more chance there is 
of something of the world trying to pull you, draw you away. You know, we often have this expression, talk about the bright lights of the city, and people, particularly young people, this expression, you know, people are drawn to the bright lights of the city. You know, that's just a distortion of Satan. Because we should all be drawn to the bright lights of the city. But the city that we should be drawn to is the New Jerusalem. That's the brightest light. That's where we should be drawn. It's nothing wrong being drawn to the bright lights of the city, but the cities of this world. It's not a good place to be drawn. They have nothing. We we end up like being moths drawn to a flame with this world. We read that when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and defiled her. In a word, he raped her. The Hebrew that we have there, verse 2, indicates that irresistible force was used. This wasn't her choice. The word Anna in the Hebrew uh, speaks of defiled and indicates a dishonorable uh, treatment. And a woman that was subjected to this kind of experience would have no expectancy of ever having a a valid marriage following such a defilement after this. You know, far more so than even in our culture today. Uh, This was a a dreadful thing that took place. And we're told, speaking of Shechem, that his soul clave unto Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the damsel and spoke kindly unto the damsel. Well, kind of a bit late for that, really. But, you know, clearly he falls in love with Dinah here. Lust, by the way, promises satisfaction, but it cannot deliver. It's not within its power to deliver that which it promises. It's purely just this, this lure to something that it can't fulfill. Yeah, and we all fall victim to the notion that if we have such and such, we'll be happy. You know, we, we do that in, in anything in our life. You know, the idea that if only I could get that, then, then I'd be, uh, I'd be happy. You know, and often we, we think about it in material terms. That if I had this piece of furniture, or if I had this house, or if I had this car, or if I had this job, or whatever, that, well, then I'd be content. You know, but we could think of it in two in regard to relationships. That, you know, if only I was in a, a relationship like this, or if I had this or that. The truth is, you won't be happy even if you get those things, because that's not the real problem. You see, the acquisition of wealth, possession, security, love, comfort, all of those things, they can't fulfill the longing that we each experience. The problem is we, we make the, the, the longing or, or the, the, the acquisition of those things, we think that that is the fulfillment or will be the fulfillment of that longing that we have. But Psalm 87, verse 7, just hits the nail on the head. It says, all my springs are in thee. That's where we find satisfaction that's where we find that which we strive and we seek for in so many different ways in different areas of our lives you see almost we compartmentalize our life and we think about you know relationships and the material wealth and we think of our spiritual life and think that that christ can satisfy the spiritual but the other parts well that's not really what he's trying to do no jesus wants to completely give us everything we need for every situation every circumstance you know, Paul makes the point in the New Testament, doesn't he, that he learned in all circumstances to be content. Why? Well, because Christ was his goal. And so whatever the situation, he was just glad because he knew that Christ was there with him in that situation and circumstance. And if he had Christ, he had everything. 
my springs are in thee. Everything we need is found in Christ. Also, Chambers makes a comment to the effect, and this is just kind of paraphrasing what he says, but basically, if you can't do it now, you won't do it then. Oh, and this is so true of our lives. You know, how many times have you, you know, made a decision, well, if, if I could get a new Bible, then, then I'd read it. Or if I could get this or that, then, then I would do that. And it doesn't happen. Why? Well, because the object that you are after doesn't provide you the means in which to do it. You know, if you're looking for a, a, a deeper spiritual walk with the Lord, if you're looking for that time of quiet and meditation each day, and you think, well, if only I could do this. Yeah, and I, I fall and pray to these things. You know, yeah, we, we've just had our, our, our room uh, that we've redecorated and got some new furniture at the back in the kitchen area at home. You know, and I thought to myself, you know, it'd be great when it's done because I can sit down there and I can sit and read and study and it'll be lovely. Do you know how many times I've done that since we did the room? Twice. You know, it's, it, we, we make the assumption that those things will provide the mechanism and then it's not that way. It doesn't work. And again, we think that if we had a certain thing, it would change the situation. But we mistake the situation for what it really is. And the longings that we have, the desires that we have, the things that we want to do can only be completed in Christ. So with Dinah here, the situation, it began with this investigation, curiosity again. She went out to see the daughters of the land, just curious. Oh, we've got to be so cautious with our daughters, with our sons as they grow up, to instruct them. Because they're not going to find what they think they're going to find. You know, one of the problems that we see in schools today is interesting, just taking Marla recently around the, the secondary schools and talking to some of the teachers and one of the conversations that came up that was asked by some of the other parents in these open evenings was about bullying and so on. And, you know, a number of the teachers said that one of the problems exists within those little groups when you've got two or three children uh, and then they have this falling out and they can say really harsh and nasty things. And, you know, all these children want to do is to fit in and be part of a, a group of friends. And isn't that really the same for all of us? We like to be accepted. We want to fit in. Well, Dinah here, no different. Nothing's changed. She wanted to, to kind of fit in. You know, and I guess growing up, we don't know how many other daughters Jacob had. We, we, from Scripture, it indicated that he had other daughters. Dinah's the only one that's mentioned because of this particular situation. But maybe with all those brothers, she felt a little bit isolated. And she wanted some, some female friends as well. And so she goes out, and so again, intrinsically nothing wrong in this, but of course the danger is when you get drawn to other people's gods, other people's ways, other people's approach and philosophy for life, which most of the time is godless. Yeah, and it wasn't just a fleeting visit, because again, we understand from Scripture that she stayed for, for many days, and it ends with this compromise, with Shechem taking her, defiling her, and so on. And then followed, as always is the case, by this desensitization. She stayed in the camp of the Hivites until her brothers came and then rescue her, effectively, or take her away. Now, we're not given much of the commentary about her thoughts of any of this, really. But she stays with Shechem. Maybe she thought this would work out okay and it wouldn't be so bad after all, and after she's been defiled to stay with this man if he wants her was, you know, she was mistaking his lust for love and 
How often do people make that mistake, particularly girls? And again, we need to educate our young ladies that men often will act in response to lust and they mistake it for love. You know, we see that progression uh, in Psalm 1. Just have a very quick look at this because we read in Psalm 1, Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, that in his law does he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by rivers of water that brings forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he does shall prosper. What a great statement to live by. You know, if we want a blessed life, well, this is it. This gives us everything we need just in these three verses here. We see step one that we see on this downward slope. Because we are walking through life. You know, we have a choice who we listen to. Dinah had a choice as to who she listened to. Step two, then, is the result of listening to the counsel of the ungodly. You know, and it causes us to stop and stand in the way with sinners. We just become curious to what they're saying. And then the final step, the edges become so blurred, just as it had done for, for Dinah here, that we end up sitting and participating. You know, you go from that walking to stopping and listening, and then you sit down and you end up becoming scornful of the things of God. It's exactly what's happened to Dinah. And probably for you and I, it's the same experience that we've had many times in many situations. And it's such a dangerous thing, you know, in the workplace, it's such a dangerous place because there's that desire to try and be appealing as an individual to other people. You want people to like you. And so maybe you don't say the things you you want to say. Maybe you don't stand up for what you believe all the time. And you all of a sudden you find yourself standing and listening to what is being said. And then all of a sudden, you find you're participating. You know, and you can relate that to your own personal experience. It just applies right across the board in whatever circumstance. You know, this is what Scripture reveals us, Psalm 1. We, we have it there. First Timothy, Paul said to this young man who was being trained to be a pastor, Now the Spirit speaks expressly that in the latter time some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits. Sometimes we miss this, don't we? These spirits that are out there, these angelic, fallen angelic beings, and these demons, they're trying to seduce us. You know, how do they seduce? Well, it's not by putting something in front of you that you don't want. Nobody would seduce me by putting in front of me a plate of broccoli. It's just not going to happen. Chocolate, maybe. But you see the point that this seduction is always done in a very seducing way. It's appealing to us. That's why we're drawn to these things. And all it is, again, it's Satan taking the good things of God and twisting them and making them something they should never have been. Or promising us something that is right and proper, but in an improper way. And speaks of doctrines of devils, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. Yeah, I'm sure some of you have had that experience where you've burned yourself at some point and you may have a patch on your skin that's just lost that sensitivity. 
that's exactly what happens, you know. We become seared, our conscience becomes seared to the things of this world and Dinah in this situation, exactly there. Another comment of Chuck Wizzler's, he said, check the destination before buying the ticket. I like that. You know, we do it in most areas of our life, but when it comes to matters of the soul, do we really do that? Matters of the heart? Do we check the destination? Do we see where this road is going to lead us? Did Dinah stop and think before she went out? What might go wrong in this trip, in this journey I'm about to take? What would happen if, clearly she hadn't thought that through. You know, and I encourage us every time we're faced by any kind of temptation, just resist the devil, draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. But think about where it will lead. Think about the consequence. Verse 4, And Shechem spoke unto his father Hamer, saying, Get me this damsel to wife. And Jacob heard that he'd defiled Dinah, his daughter. Notice this, that Jacob heard about it. Now his sons were with his cattle in the field, and Jacob held his peace until they were come. We're not told why. You know, what was he waiting for his sons to to come back for? To discuss it with them? Because that doesn't seem to have taken place. This is just a really sad situation of inactivity on Jacob's part. You know, yesterday morning I was teaching school and ministry and we've been looking at the life of David and uh, we were talking a little bit about the, the whole tragic situation that occurs with Absalom. And one of the biggest problems that, that comes out of that is that David didn't do what he should have done. He was quiet when he should have spoken. He didn't intervene when he should have done. And it's his job, it was his job as a father to do so. Jacob's job in this situation. You know, and, and as parents, as grandparents, we have opportunities to speak. You know, one thing I, I've become more and more aware of over the years is that people listen even if they don't give the appearance that they're listening. You know, and as a, a parent, as a grandparent, if you speak to children, they will take it on board. They may not show that they are, but those things do sink down. And we need to be bold and strong. And we need to speak the truth in love and let them know the difference between right and wrong. We're told that Hamer then, the father of Shechem, well, he's very active on behalf of his son. He went out unto Jacob to commune with him. Jacob's sat there waiting, not sure for what. Just hold his peace. But isn't that the way? The world is very proactive in going after us. And sometimes we're a little bit too slow. And the sons of Jacob came out of the field, and when they heard it, the, uh, and the men were grieved, and they were very wroth. Why isn't it said that of Jacob? Because he had wrought folly in Israel in lying with Jacob's daughter, which thing ought not to be done. Again, notice that Jacob just heard about it. His sons seem to be the ones that are really upset. I'm not suggesting for a moment that Jacob wasn't upset by this. But he should have acted. Maybe it was fear. And we'll see that later on. Because Jacob clearly was concerned about his reputation amongst the people and inhabitants of the land. And for good reason. Because this group of people were descendants of the giants. There may even been have been some giants amongst their community. It kind of puts it a little bit into perspective why Jacob maybe was a little bit scared. But, you know, we face giants in our community. We face giants in our lives. People who 
are of great stature. And I'm not saying that that's because, sadly, a lot of people twist Scripture and say that those giants weren't really giants. They were physically large beings. They really were in Scripture. But in our context, in our lives, we do face people that have real gravitas, don't we? And sometimes we're a little bit hesitant at coming forward because of what might be said of us. Jacob clearly concerned about the situation, so remain silent in here. And we read in Hamer communed with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. I pray you give her him to wife. And make you marriages with us. Oh, this is the way the world is, isn't it? You know, it starts off with just one thing here. There's just one relationship starts, and then all of a sudden, it wants more. I've said many times before that sin will take you further than you wanted to go. It will keep you longer than you wanted to stay and cost you more than you wanted to pay. That's what sin does. And just as we see here, this whole thing starts to escalate and make you marriages with us and give your daughters unto us and take our daughters unto you. And you shall dwell with us and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade you therein and get you possessions therein. He's saying eventually you'll become dependent upon us. And of course, you've got to see behind all of this, this satanic plan to try and wipe out this line that came down from Eve all the way through, through Noah, and then God chose Abraham, Isaac, and now Jacob. If Satan can destroy this line, can mess up this, this lineage all the way down to the Messiah, he can prevent the Messiah being born, no salvation. You start to realize why God wanted Israel to be separate. Why, as we read in Revelation 12, the seed of the woman is clothed with the nation of Israel for protection. To ensure that the Messiah could be born. That the gene pool, as it were, wouldn't become polluted. And Shechem said unto her father and unto her brethren, let me find grace in your eyes. And what what you shall say unto me, I will give. (laughs) Isn't that again just what the world does? Come join us. You can have everything you want. What is it you would like? This is just the lure of the world all the time. Ask me never so much dowry and gift, and I will give according as you shall say unto me, but give me the damsel to wife. So the world is relentless in its attempt to claim souls. The world doesn't realize it's being used as a a puppet in Satan's plans, but that's exactly what it's doing. And again, this promise is made of giving us whatever we want. You know, and and for young people, how many young Christians, young Christian men and women, boys, girls, end up getting pulled by things of the world, thinking that it's going to give them something. It's going to give them some status, some, some standing with their friends. It's going to give them some respect. It's going to give them love. We've seen already, all of those things are only found in Christ. You want love, you want status, you want some some standing? Well, how about being made a son of the Most High God or a daughter of the Most High God? Being given everything as your inheritance. All the things that are in Christ, that's our inheritance. You want to feel good about yourself? Think about the fact that the Son of God died on the cross because he loved you so much. You're not going to feel better than that. There's nothing in this world that can compare to what Jesus has given you already and all the things that are promised yet to come. 
And the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamer, her father, deceitfully, and said, because she has defiled Dinah, uh, their sister. And they said unto them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one that is uncircumcised. For that were a reproach unto us. But in this we will consent unto you. If you will be as we be, then every, uh, that every man of you be circumcised. And we're going to go on to see what they say. But this is basically the proposal. Hamer's tries to sell them on the idea, if we've seen that. He's focusing on the benefits, all that you're going to get, rather than what is right. There's a lesson there. See, Jacob was called to his country, to his family, not the Hamer's family and country. And so this is now what we're seeing, that they then will we give our daughters unto you, and we will take your daughters to us, and we will dwell with you, and we will become one people. Who's got a compromise here? Who's got to really give in? It's always the people of God that are the ones that are called to compromise if there's any kind of union with the world. And I use that word union in the right context. It's not unity. But if you will not hearken unto us to be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we'll be gone. So what they're doing here, the words please Tamer and Shechem and Hamer's sons. So they're using this sign of the covenant as this kind of double bluff, really, speaking as the world would speak. And the young men deferred not to do the thing because they had delight in Jacob's daughter. And he was uh, more honorable than all the house of his father. And Hamon and Shechem, his son, came unto the gate of the city and communed with the men of the city, saying... And we're going to just see this, this in a minute and see how he tries to sell this idea to them. Uh, but I just want to quickly throw something else in here because you've got this reference here to the fact that they come to the gates of the city. Uh, and just as an aside, uh, in Matthew 16, 18, it says, uh, And I say unto you that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The idea of gates in Scripture are always that of the council. Because that's where the towns would meet. The council of the town would meet at the gate of the city. A number of times you see this in the Old Testament used. And Jesus, in reference here, speaks of the councils of hell not being able to prevail against the church. I'll just put that in context for you as we just see an example of it there. But let's see how he tries to <laughs> sell. So this is Shechem now and his father, Hamer, trying to sell the idea to the men. And he says, these men are peaceable with us. Therefore, let them dwell in the land and trade therein for the land. Behold, it is large enough for them. And let us take their daughters to us for wives. And let us give them our daughters. Only herein will the men consent unto us or to dwell with us, to be one people, if every male among us be circumcised as they are circumcised. Again, using that sign of the covenant that God had given, which was never intended for unbelievers. And then notice, this is again how they're trying to sell it, because I guess it's a pretty difficult job to try to sell this idea of circumcision to a, another group of men who have no other vested interest. So this is what they say. Shall not their cattle and their substance and every beast of theirs be ours? You see, the deception here, and this is what the world does, there's a little promise to start with, and then they want everything. They want to take everything we have. Only let us consent unto them, and they will dwell with us. And unto Hamer, unto Shechem, his son, hearken all that went out of the gate of his city. And every male was circumcised, all that went out of the gate of his city. 
Again, we see these hidden motives that are there. And it came to pass on the third day, when they were sore, that two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brethren, took each man his sword and came upon the city boldly and slew all the males. And they slew Hamar and Shechem, his son, with the edge of the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went out. It's a horrible scene. And the sons of Jacob came upon the slain and spoiled the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their sheep and their oxen and their asses and that which was in the city and that which was in the field and all their wealth and their little ones and their wives they took captive and spoiled even all that was in the house. You know, I can't help just wondering here whether we have the same kind of zeal and of course we're not condoning their actions. But when we find our children lost to the world, what do we do? Well, certainly our Heavenly Father is not passive like Jacob in this context. But, you know, are we zealous? Do we want to see them won back? There is a, a lesson there, I think, as well. But they were clearly wanting revenge. They wanted more than just revenge. And so they wait till the, the men were clearly in pain. And they label their actions as righteous retribution. And again, I'm not condoning their actions but there is something about that attitude which could be commended. And again, then they plunder the people. This is, you know, the same kind of ideas sadly lead to things like the Crusades and all sorts of other things. You know, lots of what seems like a good idea on the surface is executed in a very bad way, which is what we see here. Uh, and, you know, there's more here because they take all the stuff that they could get, you know, and, and no doubt that was on their mind as well. So they use this righteous cause as simply a, a veil to try and get what they wanted out of this too. And Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have troubled me to make me to stink among the inhabitants of the land. This is again, this is Jacob's concern. And among the Canaanites and the Perizzites, and I be few in number, they shall gather themselves together against me and slay me, and I shall be destroyed, I and my house. And they said, should he deal with our sisters with a harlot? It's a very light rebuke. You know, it doesn't rebuke them for, for killing, by the way. Its only concern is my reputation. And by the way, the sons do get the last word. It just, just strikes of a bit of an issue here with Jacob not taking that control and authority in his family that he should have done. And had he done from the start, maybe Dinah wouldn't have even gone out in such a way. But easy to look in hindsight, isn't it? Jacob's free will choices have got him into a lot of trouble thus far. Just a couple of verses from the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 6, 12, we're told, All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Well, we can apply this to Jacob's life. We can certainly apply it to Dinah's life. You know, was there anything wrong with her going out to visiting the daughters of the land? Well, intrinsically, you say maybe there wasn't, but it was certainly one of those things that wasn't expedient. It was never going to be something that was going to help her. It was never going to be something that was going to enhance or bless her relationship with her, her father, and most importantly, with her God. Verse 23 says, All things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. You know, we need to be so careful what we do and what we watch and what we think about, where we go, and who we converse with, who we spend time with. 
Because it may be on the surface, there's nothing wrong. But the problem is when they provoke that curiosity. That's when it then leads. You know, and we're told, it was James, isn't it, that desire conceived brings forth sin. And sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. Let's just take this next chapter and then we'll, we'll finish. God said unto Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there, and make there an altar unto God that appeared unto thee when thou fleetest from the face of Esau thy brother. So this place that Jacob had already left, where he'd met God the first time, where that ladder up to heaven with the angels ascending and descending and so on, he names the place Bethel, the house of God. And then Jacob said unto his household and to all that were with him, Put away the strange gods that are among you, and be clean and change your garments. Now, maybe showing the door a little bit after the horse has bolted here, but it's still a really positive thing that Jacob now does. Maybe he's recognized that too many things have been brought back from Uncle Laban. Too many things that have been part of the world that had come with them. I mean, why would he even need to say, put away the strange gods that are among you? And maybe he's been reminded because of this situation that had he instructed Dinah, had she, he not allowed her to maybe have her own strange gods, this whole situation may never have occurred in the first place. And so for Jacob now, there's this real, let's get back to God. Let's get back to the things of God. Again, Jacob clearly recognizing that corrupting influence of the world. And those foreign gods representing corrupt passions and so on as well. The garments representing very much a loss of identity. It's interesting, isn't it, how people often end up wearing clothing to be like the world. The world just just has a whole marketing machine trying to get us to look like they want us to look. And so often that is a a losing of our identity in Christ. We we become, we try to become like the world or look like the world and be like the world. Nothing wrong with, with looking nice, but let's examine our motives. So just like we see back with, with Joshua, Jacob now calls his family to be separate. Oh, and this is a prayer that every father should be praying for the households. This is from the book of Joshua. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt and serve you the Lord and speaking of the Jordan as they crossed over the Jordan it was in floods so speaking of all those things that were their past for Israel and if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord choose you this day whom you will serve whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell but as for me and my house we will serve the Lord that, that's got to be our prayer not to, to follow after the desire to be like those things that once we were part of ourselves but to be separate you know one of First Thessalonians chapter 4 verse one of the believe it is that says that God's will is our sanctification, setting us apart. As I said earlier on, you know, holiness equals happiness. Holiness does not equal drudgery and stifling our own style or whatever else. Holiness is the best thing that any one of us can seek after. To be like Jesus, to be transformed. We can't do it by our own strength. We have to be transformed by God working in us through his spirit. But the joy, the peace, the happiness, 
comes through those things. 2 Corinthians 6, again, another important verse is don't be, or be you not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. A lot of people would just try and apply this to kind of a marriage context. But, you know, this is far broader. Don't be joined together with the world in anything that the world has. Be you not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? I mean, the world is not a happy place, is it? I mean, the, the people in the world are not generally happy. They're always striving for something. They're looking for something. They're looking for acceptance. They're looking for the next thing. Well, contrast that to the state of mind and heart and life that comes from being righteous, being content in God. I may may have told you the story before, but I remember when I was uh, a lot younger, I went out, I started working for BT, and um, you get your first couple of paychecks through, and um, I went out with a a friend and two girlfriends, they weren't our girlfriends, but they were friends who were females, and we just went out together, we went swimming for the day. And the girls had kind of gone off and were chatting, and I was uh, just sitting kind of a jacuzzi thing in the swimming pool area uh, with this guy. And this guy was kind of, he was just the coolest guy. I mean, he, he was like, he had Armani jeans, and he had a nice watch, and he's just, a, not, not in the swimming pool, but, you know, he, he had those things. And, and everybody just kind of talked about this guy as being really super cool. And it was like, I kind of in my heart thought, I'd, I'd like to be like Stuart. Stuart was this really, you know. And we were sitting there chatting, and it just totally blew my mind. Because he said to me, I'd really like to be like you. I went, what? He said, well, you, you kind of, you know what you believe. He said, you've just got that kind of security in life. And I was like, whoa. And really, ever since, it's really affected my kind of thinking about the way people think about you as individual and the way we think of other people. We look at people and think they've got it all together. But often inside, there's just turmoil. You have this contrast again. You know, being, being yoked with the world. Why would we want to be yoked with the world when that's where the world's at? Compare that to righteousness. And it says, what communion has light with darkness? That's like the, the light saying, well, I quite like to be dark sometimes. It'd be quite... And what concord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has he that believes with an infidel? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? We are the temple of God. Our bodies are the temples of God. God dwells in us. For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. There's nothing cooler, there's nothing better in life than having this privilege of being chosen by God to be a place where he will dwell. Wherefore come out from among them and be you separate, says the Lord. And touch not the unclean thing and I will receive you. So Jacob telling his family, put away all this stuff. Get rid of it. We're not going to live that way any longer. And let us arise and go up to Bethel and I will make there an altar unto God who answered me in the day of my distress and was with me in the way which I went. You know, sometimes we need these sharp reminders in life to bring us back to that place. Jacob, now because of this horrible situation we've just looked at in the previous chapter, brought back to remembering that God actually is the one that has led him this far, that has delivered him, and has promised to be with him. 
And they gave unto Jacob all the strange gods which were there in their hand and all the earrings which were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the oak which was by Shechem. By the way, when we see trees in scripture, almost always they have some symbolic reference to the cross. And this is what we do with those things of the world. We take them and we bury them at the cross. And they journeyed and the terror of God was upon the cities that were round about them. We've seen this a couple of times with Jacob. He was concerned now because what other people would think. He was concerned about Esau. God is already going before him. And they did not pursue after the sons of Jacob. And probably they've heard about what's happened at Shechem and they're not going to mess with them. But God clearly doing a work. So Jacob came to Luz, which is this place that previously was known as Luz and gets renamed to Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, that is Bethel, and he and all the people that were with him, and he built there an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God appeared unto him when he fled from the face of his brother. Now, this place Jacob has already named Bethel, the house of God. Okay, Beth being house, and El being the name of God, Elohim. But he now calls it El Bethel, God's house, God, the house of God. Or if you like, God is the God of the house. And it's, you know, it's realizing that the house or the place itself wasn't special. It was God that had made it special because that's where he'd met with God. Because there God appeared unto him when he fled from the face of his brother. Now they've come this journey back down into the land, again, from Mount Gilead to Shechem. We see this journey now down to Bethel, and we're going to carry on down towards uh, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, down to the place that we know very well. That's the area um, that Jacob is going to end up uh, heading towards. But Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died, and she was buried beneath Bethel, under an oak, and the name of it was called Alon Bachath. Now, you know, sometimes when we put away all those things of the world, we still meet problems, challenges, tragedies. You know, this would have been somebody very close to the family. It's been a very sad moment for them. God doesn't promise us a clear passage without any pain. But we still need to put those things away because that's where the blessing is. And just getting rid of the things of the world, be separated to God. And God appeared unto Jacob again when he came out of Paddan Aram and blessed him. And God said unto him, Thy name is Jacob. Thy name shall be called shall be called uh, any more Jacob, but Israel shall thy name be. And he called his name Israel. God said unto him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall be of thee, and kings shall come out of thy loins. And the land which I gave Abraham and Isaac, to thee will I give it. And to thy seed after thee will I give the land. See, it's God's land, and he gives it to Abraham reiterates it to Isaac and now telling Jacob this is your land I'm giving it to you not to the UN not to anyone else this is God's land given to Israel and God went up from him from the in the place where he talked with him and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he talked with him even a pillar of stone and he poured a drink offering thereon and poured oil thereon and Jacob called the name of the place where God spoke with him Bethel and they journeyed from Bethel and there was but a little way to come to Ephrath and Rachel travailed and she had a hard labor and it came to pass that when she was in hard labor that the midwife said unto her fear not thou shalt have this son also and it came to pass as her soul was in departing and we're told for she died 
that she called his name Ben-Omi. But his father called him Benjamin. She names him son of my sorrows. Jacob names him son of my right hand. And in that, there's a lovely picture of Christ who came as, first of all, that suffering servant. But then when he comes, the second coming, he'll come as the one who's been seated at the right hand of the Father to establish his kingdom. And Rachel died and was buried in the way to Ephrath, which is Bethlehem. And Jacob set a pillar upon her grave, that is, uh, the pillar of Rachel's grave unto this day. And Israel journeyed and spread his tent beyond the tower of Edar. Now, first time I talked through this some years ago, I, missed, I just skipped over that. I didn't think any more of it. Why, why would you? Until you realize the importance, the significance of this place. Because this is a place that's referred to in a wonderful prophecy in the book of Micah. In Micah chapter 4 verse 8, And thou, O tower of the flock, this is this place, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto thee shall it come, even the first dominion, the kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. This is an incredible prophecy. We're all familiar with the prophecy in Micah 5, about Bethlehem being the place where the Messiah is born. But this is speaking about the return from the Babylonian captivity and everything else, and the promise that the deliverance is going to come, first of all, to this place, the Tower of the Flock. And this place is fascinating. The Hebrew phrase that's used there is Migdal Eda. It's exactly the same place that Jacob has just traveled to. And it refers to a particular tower it was built in ancient times to watch over the valley on the edge of Bethlehem. It was used there to protect the city. And the name means the watchtower of the flocks. Because it would be a place where typically shepherds would look out and they'd keep an eye on all the flocks that they were responsible for. And there's several of those uh, towers that are recorded in Scripture. There's some of the references there if you want to look at them in the notes afterwards. Rabbi Short stated this, he says, this Migdal Eda was not the watchtower for the ordinary flocks that pastured on the barren sheep ground beyond Bethlehem, but it lay close to the town on the road to Jerusalem. Now, Migdal Eda is also mentioned in the Jewish Targums and translated there as the anointed one of the flock of Israel. It was believed to be the place that the Messiah would first come to. That's a picture of what we understand the tower to be like. And it's located just on the edge of the town. The bottom here, right at the bottom, you can see Bethlehem itself and the tower, just on the outskirts of the town as you come in to the town itself. And it was built as a, a watchtower, again, to be used by shepherds for protection from robbers, wild animals, etc. Now, again, we've got to understand the significance because these sheep that they were watching over were the ones that were destined for the temple to be offered up in sacrifice it was a very important job they had to guard these sheep they weren't just any old sheep these were sheep that were destined for the sacrifice in the temple but it also served a dual purpose because during the lambing season the sheep will be brought from the tower sorry brought to the tower from the fields round about and the lower level of this place served as a birthing room for these sacrificial lambs which is very interesting because, again, they were under special rabbinical care. 
the shepherds would be instructed to maintain a ceremonial, ceremonially clean birthing place for these lambs to be born in. And once birth, the shepherds would routinely place the lambs in this depression in the rock that was known as the manger. It wasn't a cattle feeding trough. It was a depression in the rock where these lambs would be placed, where they would be kept safe. And they'd also wrap these newborn lambs in these swaddling bands to prevent them from thrashing about and harming themselves until they'd calmed down, of course, because they had to be without spot and without blemish because they were going to be offered in the temple. Well, all the places to reside in Bethlehem were full at the time of the census in the New Testament when Mary and Joseph and a very heavily pregnant Mary arrived in Bethlehem. There was nowhere else for them to stay. But they'd have walked right past this place on the way into the town. And we're told, of course, that Jesus was born in a manger. Sadly, tradition, which makes the word of no effect, has given us this idea that it was a stable on the side of the innkeeper's house. See, the shepherds that were in the field around Bethlehem at this time were the ones to whom the angels appeared, announcing the birth of the Messiah. And notice that the angels gave the shepherds a sign, but no directions. Have you ever noticed this? Luke 2, verses 1, verse 18, also verse 12, reading here, but the whole portion. Uh, And this shall be a sign unto you, said the angels. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. That's it. That's all they get. Something about the swaddling clothes and the manger was enough for these shepherds to go, I know. There'd have been anything up to 8,000 people in Bethlehem at this time. And they know straight away from this sign that's given to them where to go. They didn't go around knocking on everyone's door saying, have you got a pregnant lady here? They knew where to go. They knew where the manger was. Why? Because it was their tower. There should be a sign unto you. You should find a babe. Perhaps just swallowed clothes, lying in the manger. And by the way, the Greek is quite emphatic. So this babe in the manger would itself confirm the words of the angels. And by the way, these shepherds would no doubt not have been ignorant of all the tradition that passed down to them from the Jewish Targum and so on. The belief based upon that prophecy in Micah that actually this was to be the place that the Messiah would come to. How incredible that we find then that this seems to be the place that Jesus was actually born. Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And he's born in the very place that the sacrificial lambs to be offered up in Jerusalem were laid in a manger and wrapped in swaddling bands. You just see how incredible scripture is and all these things as they tie together. That's that tower. They come to this place and it came to pass when Israel dwelt in that land that Reuben went out and lay with Billah, his father's concubine and Israel heard it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve and were given them. Sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and the sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's handmaid, Dan and Natalie, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's handmaid, Gad, and Asher. These are the sons of Jacob, which were born to him in Paddan Aram. And Jacob came unto Isaac, his father, in Mamre, unto the city of Arba, which is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac sojourned. And the days of Isaac 
for 180 years. And Isaac gave up the ghost and died and was gathered unto his people, being old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Okay, that brings us to the end of this little section. Next week, uh, if you want to read ahead into chapter 36, uh, it's a great bedtime reading. You'll find it tedious. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, it is a tedious chapter, but next week we'll look because there's some incredible things that come out of chapter 36. It's just another one of these list of names and details, um, but there's some really wonderful stuff there. So let's bow our hearts. Father, we just thank you for this morning. We thank you for the lessons that you continually remind us of the lord and sometimes just teach us afresh from your word father help us not to desire to be like the world help us lord not even to be inquisitive that we want to go and find out what the world's like but lord just to trust that which you've already told us that there can't be any fellowship between light and darkness and so father help us to be separate unto you lord to be like jacob and father even this morning if there's things in our hearts our mind our lives even intentions or or thoughts of what we would like to do that are not expedient. Lord, may we bury them at the tree. May we bury them at the cross. Lord, just as Jacob's family left all those worldly things behind, Father, they come to this place where again, Jacob is reminded that you are the God of the house. Lord, it's not just that you dwell in us, but you are the God who has given us life. You are the God who has made it possible to dwell in us. And Lord, you want us to be separate for you, that we would know the peace and the joy that comes from righteousness and holiness. Lord, thank you for these things. Lord, impress them upon our hearts over these next days and weeks, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.